Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that photos and video of the project discussed in this episode can be seen at The Creationist Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And while you're there, please give us a follow to stay up to date on the latest. And now, on with the show. When Canadian-born but San Francisco-based Gisela Schmoll shifted career paths from industrial design to architecture, she knew that there would be challenges, but she never anticipated that finding a contractor to bring her unique designs to life would be one of them. Nobody wanted to tackle this job. I think it was too unusual. Every single stud had to be custom cut because of the butterfly roof line. So it was a lot it was a lot of work and it takes a smart contractor to do this job. So it, we looked for we looked for years actually to find this contractor and we found a great one who's really interested in architecture and modern design. Do you remember the Palm Pilot? That often copied piece of tech was designed at Gisela's drafting table. After several years of working as a junior designer, she shifted lanes and started studying architecture and has been building a strong portfolio and reputation in California ever since. When we sat down to talk, our conversation revolved around a project called the Stellar Ranch House, an L-shaped home being built to integrate the land surrounding its foundation. Given its unusual shape and butterfly roof design, the obvious starting point was asking, what was the original brief from the client? Basically, I got a list of spaces that he wanted, and then we also discussed the relationships of all the spaces to each other and how he planned to use the house. Um, I, this client was pretty green. He didn't really understand architecture at all, so I had to, I had to kind of tease things out of him, the, you know, the things that were most important to him. One of the other things he talked about is capitalizing on the view because it's perched up on a little hill and it has a fantastic view. So he wanted views from every single room in the house. And he also wanted to be able to go outside from every single room of this house. But essentially that was, that was the brief. So you said that he had specific rooms that he wanted built? Yeah. So like he said, he wanted a master bedroom with an adjoining master bath He wanted a study and he wanted a spare bedroom for guests. And then, and of course he wanted a kitchen and a living room and a dining room. So that like, you know, was important to him. He also wanted a garage and some sort of mud room. So those are the things that was the beginning of the brief. And then, and then the second part of the brief, and this was never done actually in any formal way with, with Ed, it was more us talking at length. We, we started talking about the relationships of these various spaces to each other. So one of the things that came out of these discussions was that he really wanted the bedroom area to be very separate from the living room dining area, which drove the layout of the space. And then the other thing we talked about at length is he really didn't like like the open kitchen, living room, dining plans that you see in modern houses nowadays. He's like, the kitchen gets messy. It's noisy. He's it's like, why? I opened that up to the, the living room, <laughs> dining room space. So, but the thing is, he likes to cook. And so the kitchen still needed to be a space that was appealing. And he likes to cook. He'll fr- have friends over. And people want to hang out in the kitchen while he's cooking. So we had to create a space that tied in with the living room, dining room, but still keep it separate 
So, so the kind of the messy portion is hidden. So this was a parcel of land that he already owned. Was there anything on it? Oh, there was. There was a 1930s house that literally was tumbling about his ears. There, the woodpeckers had poked holes through all the siding. The siding is dry rot. There's no insulation in the walls. Literally, I think the only insulation in the walls are like, what is that? 90 years of acorns in there. Because <laughs> they keep poke, they poke holes in the wall and they toss the acorns in. So when we finally open up those walls and take a look at that house, I'm sure it'll be half full of acorns. <laughs> I mean, literally, you can see from inside to out because there's wood siding on the inside of the living room and there's cracks everywhere. It's it's pretty grim. Was that where he was living or is that where he is living? That is where he is living. So in the wintertime, it's cold. In the summertime, it's hot because it's California and there's, you know, summer heat, winter cold. It's got dry rot. It's got mold. It's just a mess. So eventually we, we'll remodel that house and he'll rent it out. But... That's after this big project's done. So let, let's go back. So after you got you and he have had the conversation, you've sort of pulled out of him exactly what he wants with regards to inside the house. Mm-hmm. What's the next step for you in the design? Well, the other thing we did too, in terms of teasing out what he wanted, we also spent a lot of time on site, you know, talking about views and the relationship of the house to the landscape. One of the other things he said he didn't want something very big that was, you know, an eyesore in the landscape that kind of dominated the landscape. So it was all about keeping it kind of low and more like Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie houses. So that was another thing that drove the design. And then after we had all these discussions of what he wanted, we spent a lot of time looking at architectural books and other architects' work. And I was trying to tease out what he wanted design-wise. I now knew what he wanted with for the spaces and the relationships of one space to the other, but aesthetically, what were we going for? I mean, if left to my own devices, we would have done a completely modern building, but he wanted something contemporary, but if left to my own devices, we would have never had any eaves. We would have never had roof overhangs. I would have done like a very clean building, but he pushed he was insistent he wanted roof overhangs to protect the sides of the building. And uh, so we spent a lot of time looking at other architects' work that, and, and what he liked. And it was, I think it was a really fruitful collaboration because it pushed me beyond where I would have gone naturally. And I think it resulted in a better project in the end. How did you guys come up with the L shape? Well, that was interesting because... I had a site survey and we kept talking about taking the bedroom area of the building and keeping it separate from the public portion of the building. And so what wound up happening is that we wind up situating the bedroom portion of the building, the private areas along the topo line of the hill facing the view. And then the living room, dining room area projects off of the hill. The initial design, it literally projected off the hill. And so it was cantilevered, not truly cantilevered. We had a few posts, but so that the living room, dining room was more exposed and was open to the whole view. You ha- we had glass on the three sides of the living room. So it was very open. 
And then the bedroom was more, even though we had a view in each room, it was more enclosed, protected, anchored to the hillside. So that's what drove the original layout. We had to make some compromises down the road to get costs down, but that's how they all came about. One of the things I wanted to actually ask you was if there were any practical decisions that had to be made that affected some of the creative choices. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of practical decisions. So in the very early design, literally the living room, dining room was glass all the way around. And it the glass went up eight feet. And so under that circumstance, you know, there's glass can't hold up a roof. So we had to put in what are called steel moment frames. So the steel was doing the work to hold up the roof. And there were three of these. And we did some preliminary pricing of both the glass and the steel. And like the windows came in at around $150,000. And my client- Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, my client just about had a conniption. And then, you know, the steel was around $80,000 alone. And and there we go, half his budget gone to glass and steel. And I said, well, Ed, you know, we can get rid of the steel moment frames and then put in sheer walls instead. It's a a standard wall built slightly differently, but it's much more cost effective. And we reduced all the the amount of glazing everywhere. So we, we cut the cost in half just by doing that. But I still feel like, I still feel like the intent of the project remained the same. It would have been great if it had been like this pavilion of glass, but part of me also thinks in some ways it got better because now we've got a, now we're starting to frame the views with the windows instead of just having glass everywhere. This allowed me to frame certain views more than others and prioritize view and how, how you see the landscape as you move through the house. So in many ways, I think it was an improvement, even though it wasn't the client's original intent. When you're doing the basic design of the house, I presume there's a certain amount of creativity that is involved with that. Once you have the basic house designed and you start to build, are there still creative elements that you can add in as you go along? Yes, we did do some of that, again, for cost-cutting measures. And then also in construction, you know, I can't anticipate everything that's going to happen in construction because I am not a contractor. Uh, But the contractor on several occasions said, hey, we have a conflict here between, you know, some framing and the electrical. Like, how do you want to resolve this situation? Or actually, what's a good example? Oh, the breezeway. That's one thing that happened on the fly is that in, in the breezeway between the garage and the house proper, we, we had a beam that went in that was unanticipated. And, and so we had lengthy discussions about how we were going to handle the wall below. It was supposed to be kind of polycarbonate wall that glowed at night when the lights were on. It was supposed to be uh, translucent. And in the end, in the end, you know, once the beam was in place, we're like, oh, that's going to look really weird. You'd see the beam up above behind the polycarbonate wall. And then below, we'd see a glow. It would create a, it was going to create a bizarre look. So in the end, we decided, okay, forget it. That's, that's the design change that happened on the fly. And I think 
we, we, we basically took that wall and we made it all stucco like the rest of the house. I think it'll look better. Okay. Well, how, how early on do you bring the um, contractor in? In this case, we, had, we actually had a difficulty finding a contractor because it's a rural area. And most of the contractors there are used to doing kind of standard ranch houses or McMansions. Nobody wanted to tackle this job. I think it was too unusual. Every single stud had to be custom cut because of the butterfly roof line. So it was a lot, it was a lot of work and it takes a smart contractor to do this job. So it, we looked for, we looked for years actually to find this contractor and we found a great one who's really interested in architecture and modern design. So he came in at, he came in very late, later than I would have liked. I would have loved to have him in earlier because because then we could have had conversations about cost-cutting and, and budget earlier. What, what do you mean by butterfly? So the roof, wow, how do I describe it verbally? verbally it, it's instead of a standard gable roof, like the traditional child, child drawing of a house, you know, you have the peak in the middle. You know, the peak, the peak is in the middle, the peak is the highest point, and then on the perimeter the roof goes down, right? So it's an A, it's an A shape, right? Now imagine if you flip that A, a upside down so that the lowest point is in the middle and the higher points are on the perimeter. So you're a V, you're a V shape. But of course, in this case, the V is not as steep, that steep as a V. It's, imagine a flattened V. Now you, you say that it took years to find a contractor. So when did this whole process with this guy start? <laughs> In 2012, yes, 2012, I started this project and we've had, I had, we had the permit, I think about three years ago and it, and then we finally, it took us two years to find the contractor. This contractor was super busy. So it took a year before he could get started. So finally last fall, he started construction. And when do you think <laughs> you're going to be able to finish? Well, we were supposed to be done in June in the next few weeks, but because of shelter in place, we're going to be pushed out another few months. But like I said, as soon as the windows are in, we're going to be putting up drywall and doing the finish work. So it's going to move very fast now. So hopefully by end of the summer. So let, let's go back. Can you talk a little bit about your past, how you got to the point of where you are in California doing architecture from doing industrial design? And what, what got you interested in industrial design, I guess, to begin with? Uh, I knew I was going to be a designer even as a teen, but I had a boyfriend in my late teens who got into industrial design and I thought that was interesting. And so I just, I fell into industrial design as a young person. In retrospect, I think I should have gone into architecture sooner. I, I wound up going to school in Southern California in industrial design. And then when I was done school, all the work was up here in the Bay Area. And so I was working in the Bay Area, basically working in tech, doing computers. And when I went into industrial design, I was thinking about working on what's housewares, you know, something I understood better than computers. And after working for about 10, 15 years doing computers, I just had enough. And also the other thing about being in tech is that technology changes so rapidly that if you're designing one computer and then in a year or two it's obsolete and it becomes landfill. So I didn't like the idea that I was contributing to 
to landfill, to uh, making this ephemeral products. So I was attracted also to architecture because of the permanence involved in architecture. And by my mid-30s, I was so tired of industrial design and I found it extremely limiting and, and uncreative that I decided to go back to grad school and switch to architecture. Little did I know that being an architect, <laughs> you were contributing to landfill just as much as an industrial design, <laughs> especially when you work on remodels in San Francisco. I mean, like there's so much waste in construction. It's really, really bad. Can we go back? Where did you talk about? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Canada, in the you know in the Toronto, the Golden Horseshoe area. You know, from Toronto. Mm -hmm all the way down to kind of Niagara Falls and Catherine's, that area. And you say that you knew from an early age that you wanted to be a designer. How, what happened? What, what got you interested in design? Oh, I was the kid who was always in the art studio from the age of about 10. When, once, when I was in school at that point, you know, art classes started being separate from, you know, kind of the regular elementary school curriculum that, you know, when you're in elementary school, you have one teacher who's teaching all the subjects. So I think it was around grade five that, you know, you had different teachers teaching. One teaches math, one teaches English. And uh, um, it was Mrs. Gossage who taught art. And at lunchtime, I was always up in the art studio. And from that point on, I was always in the art studio. And then in high school, I was able to take ceramics. And so I, instead of taking drawing classes, I was never interested in painting and drawing. I was always interested in three dimensions. So I was in the ceramic studio all the time in high school. You know, at lunchtime, after school, I, I just liked building and working with my hands and creating three-dimensional objects. I mean, that's what's so exciting about architecture is the building part of it, because you're sitting on the computer, drawing something in plan, drawing something two-dimensionally, and you're having to visualize, what is this gonna be like in 3D space? And then once it gets built, like the first time I walked into Ed's project when the framing was done, cause it's two and a half hour drive away from where I live. So I get up there once a month. And so they had to pour the slab and then they started the framing. And the first time I walked in and the framing was done, the roof wasn't, the roof framing wasn't in, but the wall framing was done. And I walked in and I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly how I imagined it. This is great. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, the other thing is, you know, I'm working again, mostly on remodels and additions. And those are much more limited in terms of working three-dimensionally and spatially. You know, it, it winds up becoming more of a graphic design and an interior design exercise when you're doing a remodel. Uh, in addition, there's more opportunity there, but it's not the same as ground up construction where you're really working in three dimensions. It's so exciting. It's really exciting. It makes me happy every time I go up there. <laughs> That's awesome. Can you can you talk a little bit about your involvement in the design of the Palm Pilot? Oh, <laughs> so. When Palm Computing approached the firm I was working for, which was Palo Alto Design Group at the time, Palm Computing was a startup. They had pretty little money. And my understanding was that 
they did not pay my bosses in cash. They, they gave, they gave my bosses some stock in the company. And so, you know, given that my bosses were getting no cash for this job, they gave the assignment to their cheapest employee, their most junior employee, which was me at the time. I was like, I think a year out of undergrad and the most junior industrial designer on staff. So they give it to me and that's how I, get, that's how I wound up doing it. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about the whole Palm Pilot, it was who would have known it was going to be such a huge success. I really wish I had gotten royalties because they sold over a million of them of the first generation. And if I had gotten royalties, I would be a rich woman now. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you know, what's fascinating about the whole Palm Pilot is that it was widely copied for, you know, I don't know, 10 years afterwards. Like the whole button layout at the, at the bottom. I did, I can tell you, I did hundreds of iterations of button layouts. And I don't even remember why we wound up, you know, having two circular buttons with arrow keys in the middle. But literally for... 10 years afterwards, everyone started copying that button layout as if it was sacrosanct. It was interesting to see how that worked out. I think, I think you know, corporations are just inherently risk averse. So when one formula works, they wind up copying it endlessly instead of taking a risk and doing something new. I think the same could be said for pretty much every industry. Yeah, you're probably right. So with regards to designing in general, where do you get your inspiration? There's no simple answer to that. I mean, I spend a lot of time looking at other architects I admire, but at the same time, I feel like what drives a project is often the constraints that are imposed, either by the client, what they want, by the site, especially if you're doing remodels in addition, it's very much constrained by site and neighbors and what they want. So I, I really feel like I'm often responding to the constraints around me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think constraints often push me out of my comfort zone. And if there's a constraint I really dislike, it forces me to think creatively and think outside the box to come up with something that is more creative and looks better or works better, functions better, you know? You know that that that's fair, but it, but it makes me wonder if, in between these projects, are you designing like dream homes or dr dream structures, dream buildings, just as an exercise of creative outlet? No, actually, for one thing, I'm too busy. But you know, I keep talking about doing competitive work and some of my own projects, but. I don't have time and I actually find, I find my work creatively fulfilling. And I think the other thing that industrial design has helped, the industrial design has really helped me, I think, as an architect because architecture requires you to be able to operate at different scales, both the big picture scale, like so you're laying out a floor plan, you're thinking about the overall spatial relationships of one room to the next, a house in the environment or the building in the environment. But the other thing that, a really good architect has to do is think about details. And I, I really enjoy working on the details too. Like I will noodle quarter inch 
you know, eighth inch level of details. And a lot of architects don't like to get into that, you know, especially when I was in grad school, it was all big picture work. It's like work on floor plans, do pretty renderings. And I think a lot of my classmates, once they started working and realized what architecture really entailed, spending a lot of time drafting out details, but the details are so much design happens in the detail, the end result you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter how great the space is, is, is if the details aren't beautifully thought through, it's just not going to look anywhere near as good. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, maybe if you go to, to a fancy restaurant and, you know, if you go to a fancy restaurant, you know, the presentation of the food is part of what you're experiencing. You could have the same food at home, but you probably don't put that little little sprig of rosemary on the side and artfully arranged pieces of the food. You know, it tastes just as good, but it doesn't look as beautiful. And that's what the details do in terms of architecture. After being on hold for several months due to the coronavirus, construction on the Stellar Ranch House has resumed, and the home should be finally finished before the end of the summer. If you're interested in seeing some of Gisela's other work, please visit schmalldesign.com. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just want to say hi, please email the creationistpodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any friends that might be interested in this podcast, please share the link with them. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrant. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.